0: Well, recently in New York, I got to interview a woman. Her name is Lauren Cadillac. I interviewed her as one of our guests at the Iridescent Podcast, which is one of the wonderful things I get to do. Cadillac, what a name, right? Lauren Cadillac. I was like, never change your name. That's so cool. And uh, and she goes by uh, her brand in New York and what she does. She goes by the name uh, the Feel Good Dietitian. That's 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 her name. And and she helps people uh, really uh, regain health, especially especially. especially if they've gone through a crisis with their health uh, when it comes to nutrition. And I thought that was really interesting that that was her name, Feel Good. Because I'm like... When I think of dieticians and nutrition and exercise and health, feel good is not what I think. I think pain, this is gonna be a painful process. And so I asked her, I said, okay, well tell me more about this name, feel good. That's really interesting. And the first thing that she said, the first words that came out of her mouth were diets don't work. And when she said that, what I heard was eat as much bread as you'd like. Now I know that's not what she said, but that's what I heard. So I immediately was like, yes, I agree. Tell me more, you know? And and, uh, and then she said, you know, uh, instead I help people really discover uh, eating right to, to feel good. And my next question was then, um, how many donuts then can I, I mean, I'm asking for a friend, uh, can I eat? Because um, that, that, they make me feel good. And she clarified, uh, no, I, not, not what makes maybe, you know, your appetite feel good, your body. What makes your body feel good? I was like, oh, And it was almost like this is interesting. It was like almost a sheepish reaction, but I thought about it for a second, and I couldn't help but ask, well, how do I know what makes my body feel good? And she goes, ah, that's it. That's the biggest issue that people face when it comes to really gaining health with their nutrition. We're so busy. We're so exhausted. We're so distracted. We're so overwhelmed that a lot of times we don't even know the cues that our body is sending us. We are are too busy to actually notice what really makes our body bodies feel good. And instead, we continue to to eat things that that, uh, might uh, stifle or silence the hunger craving but lack any nutritional value. And usually, it's not until there's a real pain point in somebody's health that they're willing to step back and process what they're putting in and how it's impacting them. And and I thought about this, and I went, wow, that's so true. And and, and I, I couldn't almost, like, I couldn't shake that principle because the more that I thought, about it, I realized that that didn't just apply to my nutritional health, but a lot, even more, I believe it applied to my relational health. And here's what I mean. I realized that there's a lot of times in my life where I have been so busy, have been so distracted, have been so uh, uh, exhausted, going through the motions of everyday life and just trying to manage it all that I couldn't even be aware of my soul's craving for authentic community, to really truly connect well with the people around me. And often, what I default to are things that uh, they simulate this idea of relational connection, but they're truly void of any relational nutritional value. For example, at the end of the day, I'll pick up my phone and I'll scroll Instagram and I'll like and I'll comment instead of making the time to sit down with somebody face-to-face and have a real conversation about what's going on in my life. Or at work, I might continue to have the same sort of, I don't know, kind of shallow conversations about the weather and the day, instead of engaging in the real conversation that might Might require a honesty and a conflict that makes me feel uncomfortable but that inevitably will lead to healthier dynamics and more unity as a team I've also been the one to when I get a text hey how you doing I've been thinking about you so quickly I can just respond with great how about you instead of actually calling them so they can hear my voice and know hey there's more to the story here let's really talk I don't think I'm alone I think that this is a problem in our culture today I think that this is a real challenge for us in society today to know how to read the cues of our soul when we need to connect, what it looks like to connect relationally, what it looks like to be a part of authentic life-giving community. I think that's a challenge. And yet regardless of what season of life we're in, regardless of how busy or demanding our life feels right now, regardless of either our past experiences when it comes to relationships, We can't deny the fact that we need them. (laughs) We need healthy ones. God designed us. He created us to thrive in community. In fact, Jesus speaks about this relational need that we all have in John 17. This is a really interesting portion of scripture because in all the gospel accounts, only this gospel account includes Jesus's prayer for us. Nowhere else in the Bible do we see Jesus praying for you and me. God's prayer for us. This is phenomenal. If you've ever asked the question in your life, what is God's will for my life? Anybody been there? Anybody ever asked that question? Yes, I'm probably not alone. We've all, it's like the million dollar church Christian question. God, what is your will for my life? We have a prayer. Jesus is praying for us. I think that's a clear indicator of what his will is for all of us. And in a few short verses, We get to see god's desire for us his perfect will for us and we clearly and quickly see a theme emerge in these few short verses of prayer that jesus prays for us in john 17 20 through 23. jesus says my prayer is not for them alone and that's referencing the disciples he says i pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one father Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one. Here's that word again. As we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. How fascinating that of all the things that Jesus could pray for, He prays for our relational need. And he sees the answer as being unity. He doesn't pray for our careers. He doesn't pray for a bigger paycheck. He doesn't pray for a promotion at work. He doesn't pray for our future spouse. He doesn't pray, you know, fix it kind of prayers, which to be clear, God is so good, isn't he? What we sang about earlier is so true. We can come to God with every single need we have, and he is so faithful and good to us to care and to meet us in our moments of need, to provide for us richly. He's not just a good, decent father. He's the perfect heavenly father, and we can boldly approach him knowing that he's taking care of us and that he loves us, and in any season, whatever the challenges, he has our best interest in mind, and yet Jesus didn't pray any of those things for us. Because Jesus knew there was an even greater need. Our need to be one. Our need to be a part of true, authentic, Christ-centered community. And we see that this quickly becomes a theme in the New Testament. Beyond Jesus's prayer, the early church took this to heart. In fact, in Galatians, we read about the same concept of one as the Apostle Paul is reminding the church of who they are. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ. Christ Jesus. He's saying, listen, there's no longer fractions. There's no longer, oh, this is how this group of people votes, and this is how this group of people votes, and this is what these views are, and this are the people who believe these views, and this is the older folk, and this is the younger folk, and this is the person who likes this kind of teaching, and here's the person who prefers these kind of sermons. No, no, no. We are all one in Christ. Joni Erekson Tata wrote this. Believers are never told to become one. We already are one, and we're expected to act like it. We're one. It's like, oh man, someday God, I hope you you figure this out for us. We're one. And now the call is to act as we are in Christ. One. This is something that the church took to heart, the early church. Inspired by the Spirit of God, led by the Spirit of God, they took Jesus' prayer to heart. And they chose to be devoted, yes, to Jesus and also to one another. And there's so much instruction in the New Testament epistles from the early church leaders on how to protect and cultivate our unity. In fact, Hebrews talks about this. Ten Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, often we take this verse and and we apply it to mean church attendance. Like, don't stop going to church because Hebrews 10 says this. But according to the scripture, if we really look at it, that's just the baseline. Like, that's like the minimum expectation, There's so much more in here to our unity being put into practice, like spurring each other on towards love and good deeds, not giving up on each other, encouraging one another, and get this all with a sense of urgency. This isn't something that we're supposed to do if we just have time. Oh, I have a day off, I guess I can text somebody. When, when, when I have more more uh, time in my life, then I'll get around to it. When I'm feeling it, when I'm in the mood. No, no, no. There's a sense of urgency that we treat one another this way, that we love one another this way, that we lean into each other this way, that we wrestle with the difficult stuff this way. I think sometimes we look at this teaching and we look at the early church. And we look at even the disciples and the interaction with Jesus, and we kind of, I don't know, like romanticize some of it. You know, have you ever thought, man, I just wish I could spend a day with Jesus. Like, just be with the disciples, with him, and really know. It's funny the things that we wonder about. Like, what did he really look like, you know? <laughs> like, okay, right? But like, we have these thoughts. Like, I just want to sit at his feet, right? But if you read the gospel accounts, this was imperfect people following a perfect Savior, which meant it was messy. They fought with each other. They argued over really stupid stuff with each other. Jesus had to call them out on it a lot. You know, Jesus had to remind them of what this whole thing was about a lot. They failed a lot. And it was that group of people that he said, walk in complete unity and led by the spirit of God, there is nothing that will stop the church. We look at the early church and we see that they put this into practice, even though they were imperfect. They were committed to a perfect Savior, and because they were committed to a perfect Savior, they were therefore committed to each other, and we see, perhaps like we've never seen in any generation since, such perfect, beautiful unity being outworked. In Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, we we see what this really looked like. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer everyone was filled with awe in many wonders and signs performed by the apostles all the believers were together and they had everything in common they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need that's next level together right it's one thing to show up and be like oh you're going through a difficult time okay i'm gonna pray for you oh god bless you oh you need money from me oh, i'm not sure right you know like you need me to sacrifice something like my time and my energy. Ah, I don't know if this is what I signed up for. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You eat with people that you call friends. We don't eat with strangers. That's weird, right? When you invite somebody to your home, that symbolizes something. Your friends, your family now. And they did this praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And listen, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Phenomenal. Because they were devoted to each other, not just to Christ, but to each other, three things happened. They spiritually matured. You can see that all in the text. They were practicing the spiritual disciplines and connecting with God in a way that was transforming them. Their needs were being met, and daily, people were coming to faith because they'd never seen a community quite like this. Now, let's take a quick poll in here. I'm interested. Who here would say that in some area of your life, you would like to become a little bit more like Jesus than you are right now? Anybody? Show of hands. Ah, Sunday school, golden stars for all of you. Good answer, right? You know? How many of you have a need in your life, any sort of need in your life right now that you would love to be met in one way or another? Anybody? Some of you are like, yes, you know. (laughs) And how many of you right now have somebody in your life that you go, man, I just really hope that they discover Christ and know how loved they are because I know what Jesus has done in my life and I want that for them. Anybody? Anybody? Okay then this message just became very important for every single one of us. Because those needs that we just described, those desires, those wants are met when we choose to walk and live and view each other as one. When we pursue the unity that Christ died on the cross to offer us. So how do we do this? Well, as much as we could have a message where we talk about practically the things to do, that will cause us to grow in our understanding of unity and really foster Christ-centered community. I think it's equally important sometimes that we talk about the things that might be attacking the unity that Christ has already given us. Case in point. My friend, she recently, uh, a dear friend of mine, moved into a larger apartment in New York, her and her husband. They were preparing to start a family. They've since had two twin girls, which is pretty amazing, and they needed a larger space. And uh, this was like the apartment of her dreams that they got into, and so she decided, okay, this is home for a while. So they got new furniture, really like nested, you know? And one of the things that she got for the living room was what she referred to as her grown-up adult plant, because it was one that cost more than $30, and it was one that you didn't put on the windowsill. Like, it was in the corner of the living room. It was massive. And she is not really that great with plants, but she always wanted one. She's kind of had notoriously bad history with plants. And so when she bought this plant, she was like very concerned about the instructions, like she like tell me exactly what to do, and she's like I am going to put my best foot forward in keeping this plant alive. And she followed the instructions to a T. She was diligent about caring about that plant. And that plant was doing so well. And when people would come over, even though she had all new furniture in her living room, the one thing that she would show people right away is look at my plant. Like there was pride in that plant. One day she woke up and suddenly the plant had taken a turn for the worse. It was, it was tragic for her. She's like, what is happening? She, she was Googling. She's trying to figure out if she wasn't taking care of it right. She's wondering, did I not water it enough? She watered it more. That only made it worse. But all of a sudden the leaves were droopy. It was dying. This plant was turning brown. The leaves, she couldn't figure it out. So one day she's watering the plant that is dying and she notices just really suddenly something move on the plant. She's like, What? So she starts examining the whole plant, and she can't find anything, but she's convinced just from that one split moment that bugs are attacking her plant. That that is the source. So she calls her husband. Her husband, he's an engineer, and he works with landscapers a lot on different projects in New York. And she says, "Babe, I need you to bring a professional in. I need you to bring one of the landscapers to look at our plant because bugs are attacking and destroying this plant." And he's like, "I'm not calling one of my colleagues to come look at your house plant." And she's like, "No, you're doing this. I'm pregnant. You're doing this." And so you know, like, pregnant women are like, "You do this," and men are like, "Yes, your birth." my child. So they, they, he brought over a landscaper, looked at the plant, and sure enough, bugs that were so small that to the common eye, you could not see them, were destroying the plant. And as soon as they were able to identify that and start to treat the plant within a week, the plant had returned to its former glory. When we're talking about unity here, Hope we understand that Jesus has birthed something in his church called unity. He's called us as one. And sometimes it's not the things that we are doing that is, is, is needs to be fixed. It's the things that we're not noticing that are going on that we need to address. That are eroding the community that Christ died on the cross to offer us. So I want us to look at a, a couple of those bugs here this morning that might be infiltrating and affecting what could be the best, ah, oh, the better ah, the life-giving, ah, the Christ-like community that we were meant to thrive in. So here's bug number one, pride. Oh, some of you are like, really? You wanted to go there right away, pride? Yeah, we'll go there, why not? Pride, pride is so interesting because it's something that we all struggle with, truly. We all do. You know, there's not one person here in this room, if you're like, oh, I don't struggle with pride at all. That might be a sign you struggle with pride. You know what I mean? Like we all all deal with it in different moments, and it's incredibly subtle. And yet the Bible is really clear that when we approach each other with pride in our hearts and from a posture of arrogance, that it doesn't actually lead to unity. In fact, it leads to disunity. Ephesians discusses this quite clearly. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 gives us a different model instead of pride to choose another way says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Doesn't that sound like exciting? Okay, tell me, how am I supposed to live worthy? Here's the next words. Be completely humble and gentle. That's how we live worthy of our calling, humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity. Of the spirit through the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Ah, Pride is, is really interesting because pride sells us a couple lies. Pride tells us that we don't need anybody and pride tells us that we know better. And at the heart of both of those statements is really fear. The longer I've lived and the longer I've been more self-aware of when pride is calling the shots in my life, behind pride is usually a dose of insecurity. When I say I don't need you, it's because I've been hurt before. I've been burned before. So my pride will be a wall of defense, saying, Ah, you know, it's cool that we hang out, but I don't need you. I'm good. And to say that I know better than everyone else is another wall of defense. Really, I'm saying, I don't want you to correct me. I don't want you to judge me. I don't want you to criticize me. I don't want to show you my weakness at all. So I'm going to posture myself like I know it all. Sound familiar? Anybody ever been there? (laughs) And pride starts real early, you know, like in kids. Like it's there. I remember one of my earliest memories. I was like three, I think I was three years old. Earliest memories. My mom was in the kitchen and she was ironing my dad's clothes for work the next day. And she had to use the restroom. And so she said to me and my sister, my older sister, don't touch the iron, it's hot. I'll be right back. My sister is a rule keeper. Older older siblings, everybody's different. I want to like generalize, but God bless the older siblings who kept the younger ones alive. You know what I mean? Like, she was the rule keeper. She was like, listen to mom. She knows what she's doing. I was not. And so, uh, you know, as soon as my mom said the iron is hot, my first thought was, hmm, I wonder how hot it is. And so then I climbed to new heights. I climbed on top of the kitchen table onto a part of the ironing board, like, hanging to reach the hot iron. And I didn't just put my finger on it. I put my whole hand on it. Yes. Yes. Pride will burn you. Okay. Like again and again, you know, it starts young. And we've all had that experience, right? Where pride has burned us. Think about it. You you know, where you're like, you look back on your life, go, why didn't I just listen to them? Like they did know best. Why did I think I knew everything? Why did I think I didn't need that help that I needed? Anybody Is this just me? No, we all have these experiences, you know? Like, you ever have that relationship where you're like, oh, they're the one. I know it. I love them. They're amazing. God has called me to them. And everybody's like, run, run, run. And you're like, no, no, I see the potential inside of them. Like, I'm seeing them with Jesus' eyes right now. Two months later, you're like, should I run? Should I run? Should I run? You know? Pride. It shows up in in strange ways. And it's subtle. It's subtle, like we could be like, oh, I'm a humble person. Me and Jesus, were good. I'm not, I'm not arrogant. I'm, I'm calm. I'm peaceful. I'm a person of peace. I'm a peacemaker. And then something can happen, and all of a sudden, whoa, pride rears its ugly head. The other day, I was walking. I was walking in New York, and, uh, and I was at a crosswalk. And so I was like, okay. So I pulled up my phone, and I'm checking Instagram, and I saw that I had a direct message interesting how fun so I check it and I look and it's from a stranger I don't know this person and they they start saying some really nasty things about me and criticizing me and you know um, questioning my decision making because it's not a very godly example for young women and then says that I dress like J-Lo that's what they said in it and I I had a moment where I was like well one why you got to bring J-Lo into this like she's not here to defend herself in this conversation that's not cool and then I was like I don't know, should I be flattered, should I be upset? I don't know. Like, listen, context, Uh, a week before, I had walked downstairs in our apartment and i just gotten this new dress, it was like this bohemian style, like long dress and it had like these puffy sleeves and I went to like put on my boots. I walked down, I'm excited about this dress, my husband goes, why are you dressing like a pilgrim? Like, that's usually, you know what I mean? So I'm like, what? I don't, this is a very different conversation I'm not used to, you know? For a split second, whoo, I got so mad at that troll, because that's really what they're doing. They're trolling, you know? All of a sudden, I'm like, I'm, I'm like Jesus today. I've spent my time with Jesus. I've been in the word. This is going to be a good day. I'm going to minister and bless people. All of a sudden, I get that direct message, and I'm typing back like, well, I think it's quite interesting that you as a Christian think that trolling is sending a good message to young women. Why don't you think about that? You know, like, I'm ready to send it thank you, Jesus, for your spirit that puts us in check. You know, like, it's like, like right before I was about to hit send, the Holy Spirit's like, don't you dare, you know? And I was able to remind myself, wait a second. <laughs> this is pride. Let me actually just pray for that person. It's not worth the conversation, you know? And, uh, and I texted a few of my friends and kind of laughed about it and said, is there something you need to tell me, like an intervention, you know? But listen, I, I think that sometimes it's easier to take a step back when it comes to strangers. <laughs> I, I actually think it's harder when it's the people close to us. Right? It's ironic. It's like somebody close to us says, hey, I have a concern. I want to talk to you about this. Or hey, you know, you're kind of this, that, that seems a little off right now. And immediately our response is, you don't know me, to the people who actually know us. You know, it's, it's very funny, right? Pride. Pride acting as this safeguard to protect us, but really what it does is disconnect us from the very people who are here to help us and see us grow and mature in our faith. And so what do we do when we feel like pride is rearing its ugly head? How do we we combat this? Earlier in Galatians, we read that we have been clothed with Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Clothed with Christ. You choose what clothes you're going to wear, and you have to put them on. And I believe when pride starts to rear its ugly head that by the grace of God, we can actually call on the Holy Spirit and say, you know what? I'm going to choose to clothe myself differently right now. I'm going to lay down some pride and I'm going to clothe myself in humility. And I'm going to have the posture that Christ had towards me on the cross. And when we do that, then we're able to listen to one another, reconcile with one another, learn and grow from each other. And now we get to see the true fruit of unity that God's called us to. Pride, it's a bug. It's a bug we need to stop. You know, another bug I think that keeps us from operating in the oneness that God's called us to is isolation. Isolation is really interesting because isolation can also happen very subtly. It's this idea that when things get tough, when there's a lot going on in our life or when somebody hurts us, Instead of leaning into community for our healing, for our support, we take steps back. I've been so guilty of this. This has been my, my MO more than probably any other one, any bug in my life, is, is this idea of, like, I just got to figure it out, you know? And so people might be asking you, hey, how you doing? How's life going? And you're like, God's good. And it's like, yeah, you're right, he is, but I didn't ask about God. I asked about you. Ugh. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. My husband has quickly learned that when a woman says she's fine, she's a lot of things, but fine is not one of them, right? I think that's just common, you know? But also I'm like, I'm fine, I'm okay, things are good. When they're not actually very good. But instead of us leaning in and opening up so we could receive what we need, we take steps back and we isolate. And that's such a dangerous place to be. In fact, Proverbs talks about how dangerous this is. It says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Like when you isolate, that is the worst possible thing you could do. Crazy, right? But we justify isolation a lot. In our minds, we kind of reason our way through it. We say things like, well, you know, they, they wouldn't really understand anyway. Nobody's got time. Everybody's so busy. I don't want to be a burden. You know, I, I, I don't want to be vulnerable. I, I opened up before, and I know what happened at the last church. I'm not doing that again, right? I don't have time. I'm too busy. Like, I, I don't want any more drama. No one cares anyway. And what's fascinating about isolation is it's not a just, it's not a something that you can just go, oh, I can tell you're isolating because you didn't show up today. It's not a physical posture, it's a heart posture. So you could be present. You could be showing up to every small group, you could serve on multiple teams, you could be at every service uh, and, and still be isolating here. Right? How you doing good when you're not doing good? <laughs> that person hurts you, so you're like, oh, God bless you. But here you're distancing yourself instead of having the conversation that will lead to healing and wholeness, right? Isolation. So what do we do? I think it's, it's quite simple. We have to do what's uncomfortable. We have to choose to lean in and choose this word that we hate, Vulnerability. But if we learn anything from the posture that Jesus took with his disciples and how he teaches us to love one another, we learn that vulnerability is not a weakness, it's a great strength. In fact, Proverbs talks about the opposite of isolating ourselves in Proverbs 27, 17 and what that brings to our life. As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. And sharpening, by the way, sounds really great, doesn't it, on paper? But that actually is painful in real life sometimes. It looks like conflict. It looks like hearing the tough thing. It looks like tears. It looks like showing up for people when you don't want to show up for people sometimes. But it's this environment in which we become sharper together. So perhaps the question to ask ourselves is who is close enough right now in our lives to actually sharpening us? Are we being sharpened by anybody? If not, then perhaps isolation has gotten in the way of the oneness that we're called to. And here's the final bug, division. That's a big word. No one wants to be accused of division, right? That sounds pretty brutal. But what I found is that this big word is often what takes place when we participate in something that's far more common in every day, gossip. <laughs> yeah. So you're like, I'm going to look straight ahead. I'm not looking at anybody right now, you know, gossip. Here's the thing about gossip. We spiritualize it all the time. We do. I've been guilty of this. Did you hear what's going on with so-and-so? I'm telling you because we need to pray for them. Pray. I'm praying for them. That's why I'm letting you know so we can pray. Listen, how often we say that in church, you know, and I'm not talking about this. I'm just in big C church, Right? Like, we should be the most interceding generation of church ever. Like, everyone has been given the gift of intercession then. You know what I mean? We could use a lot more prayer and a lot less talking. Or things like, I just thought that you should know. Some people said that to me before. I was like, why? I don't even know that person. Why would I need to know? I just thought you should know, right? <laughs> why do we say these things? We get into this really bad habit, not just in church. And, and, and hear this. this is just a life thing. It could be in church, it could be with our family members, it could be in our in our workplace. We get into this really nasty habit sometimes of talking about people instead of talking to people. It's like Jesus knew that this was our tendency. Because conflict doesn't come natural to anybody, even the people are like, I love conflict. No, no, you just like having like fierce conversations, but sometimes we can fall into the category of either bullying to get our way in conflict or avoiding it at all costs because it's uncomfortable. We don't don't naturally know how to do conflict well apart from Christ, but Christ knows this. And so he goes out of his way in all of his teaching on how to live to bring the kingdom of God. He talks about this very thing. He instructs us on how to deal with conflict. He's like, hey, no, 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 don't talk about people. I'm going to show you. It's going to require a little bit of maturity. You're going to have to show up. It might be uncomfortable, but here is actually the way. In Matthew 18, 15 through 20, this is what Jesus says. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. Go privately, not send a group text, not passively aggressive. Say hi, but never talk to them about it. No, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Now, this is worth noting here. How did Jesus treat the pagan or the tax collector? He loved them. He didn't have theological debates with them. He loved them. And so I think we have to interpret this correctly. Some of us read that and go, oh, well, if they still don't get it, then be gone, expelled. No, no, no. We love them. We don't have the conversation anymore because we're not at the same place, but we will let our love actually be the larger message that gets sent. We love I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. This is interesting. He just went from talking about conflict resolution and now he's talking about agreement. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. So Jesus equates our ability to have healthy conflict and not talk about each other, but talk to each other to speak truth and love, and to remain united in correlation with the power of unity on the earth. He says, if you can figure this out and actually practice oneness, then what you pray for, it's going to happen. Then the miracles you're believing for in the city are going to happen, but you've got to learn how to relate to one another and prefer one another and have reconciliation and not approach somebody to be right, hello, or to get your way, but out of reconciliation. I love one of the titles that the, the Bible gives us as Christians is ministers of reconciliation, not ministers of opinions. Some of us think that's our calling. Oh, I gotta tell you what I think about this and this and this. That's our culture Speaking. Let's spout out our viewpoints and let's divide at all costs because that equals success for my party. But we're called to reconciliation. We're called to something greater, which means we have to actively practice talking to each other, not about each other, approaching each other with humility and not pride, leaning in and not away when things get difficult. And when we do, oh, this is the most beautiful part of all. Jesus said that they will know that you are my disciples by the sermons you preach. No. By the quality of worship. No. By the programs. No. By how many followers you have on your Instagram account. No, no, no. They will know that you are truly my disciples the way that you love one another. (laughs) The way that you love one another. And that's my prayer for us today. That we would lean into the oneness that we already are. That we would treat each other as one. That we would practice the way of Christ so that we could see our needs being met, Jesus glorified, and more and more people coming to know the radical saving grace of Jesus that we know. Amen? I want to pray with us very quickly. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you call us to maturity. (laughs) I pray that you actually teach us the difficult things. You teach us how to live with each other, and that's messy. But you lead us and you guide us through it, and I thank you for it. I thank you for wisdom from your word. I thank you for the guidance from your teaching, and I pray, God, that we would make it our own, that we would take it to heart. And for those of us in this room right now who would just say, yeah. This was challenging because I'm being convicted of pride. For those of us right now who'd say, yeah, pride's been calling the shots, Jesus, we humbly lay it at your feet. Forgive us of pride, God, and instead, may we have a posture of patience and humility towards each other. For those in this room who've allowed circumstances in their life or maybe even hurts to cause isolation. We make a choice today. We're drawing a line in the sand in our hearts that we're going to lean towards community and not away. We're going to have the conversations we need to have, Jesus. Lead us in those. We're going to be open. We're going to show up, not just physically, but with our hearts towards each other and for each other. And Father, where perhaps we have been a bit guilty of talking about instead of two, I pray, God, that you would stretch us in the best possible way, that we'd become more like you in the way that we speak truth and love to one another. I pray more and more that we'd be a people that reflect your love on the earth in the way that we serve and love and bear with one another. And Jesus, may you be made known through our love. While we're in this attitude of worship, I just wonder if there's anybody attitude of prayer right now our hearts are soft before God I wonder if there's anybody who would say you know what I feel far from God maybe you came here today and perhaps you've grown up in church maybe you haven't been to church in a while maybe you show up every week but in all honesty it's it's never been personal for you or maybe at one time it was but right now you'd say in all honesty I feel far from him Well, today, friends, I want to encourage you that you can just make a simple decision to place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'm not talking about checking a box of religion. I'm talking about pursuing just an authentic relationship where Jesus is your Lord, where you follow him, where you learn from him, and you receive from him what you could never do for yourself, what I could never do for me, eternal life and eternal salvation. He loves you, friend, and he has a plan and purpose for your life. I pray that you know that today. If you're ready to just make that simple decision in your heart, simple yet extraordinary and life-changing, then wherever you are in this room, I don't want to embarrass you, but I do want to pray for you. If that's you, would you raise your hand so I know who I'm going to pray for in just a moment? There's hands going up in this room. Is there anybody else? I see that hand. Anybody else? I see that. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Well done. I see that hand. You can go ahead and put your hands down. And we're gonna pray together. I'm gonna ask everybody to pray. And those of you who raised your hand, just make it personal. Mix faith with these words. And I'm asking everybody to pray so that we could just support those right now who are making this decision and show our support, show our unity, show our oneness in this moment. So everybody, why don't you repeat after me? Say, Jesus, I thank you for what you've done for me, that you paid the price for my sin on the cross. You died for me. And you rose from the dead for me. And today, I'm placing my faith in you as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for salvation. Father, lead me. Holy Spirit, guide me. Continue to show me your great love and what it means to daily follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, can we give a huge round of applause to those who made that decision?